Good morning, New Life. Congratulations, graduates. What an accomplishment. It's going to be exciting to see what you all do in the future. It's exciting to see what you've already done um, now. So uh, before I start, I want to thank uh, Justin Kendrick, who's a pastor, who I'll be using a couple of his illustrations throughout. Um, I, they've blessed me as I've prepared, and, and I pray that they bless you as well. So uh, I want to start off by asking for your forgiveness. Uh, this won't apply to everyone, but for those of you that it does, I want to say that I am sorry. You guys are familiar, I'm sure, with the five love languages. Well, high on my list is, is physical touch. And what I mean by that is hugs, pats on the back, shoulder, etc. So when I enter into social situations and I'm greeted with a handshake or a hug or someone touches me on the shoulder, I feel welcomed and loved. So I just assume that's how everyone operated. Uh, sure, I knew there were people out there that didn't like to be touched, but I really didn't get those people until, <laughs> until mid-March when COVID-19 was starting to impact our nation. At that point, there was so much uncertainty. I didn't, you didn't know if you were going to get it from your dog, your cat, Amazon boxes, let alone a touch from a person. It was an intense time, and I quickly went from being a person who felt love when I was greeted with, with a hug to wanting to wear a sign that said, hands off. I still remember two times that I was greeted with a touch early on in March. Uh, someone touched my, my sock while complimenting its fun design. They've been destroyed. Uh, the other time, and actually it was the same person that did this, so I'm not going to mention names, but they're in the building. Uh, the, the other time I was wearing a jacket and they touched me on the back. Uh, as soon as I got out of the situation, I threw the jacket to the ground, I picked it up with a gloved hand, I went home, I threw it on the, in the washing machine. Um, so I'll be honest with you, until COVID-19, I, I thought you non-touchy-feely people were kind of nuts, and, and you probably are, but, um, but I get you now, I understand you, and I want to ask truly for your forgiveness, for myself and all the other people that forced their love language on you, uh, and just assume you felt love when you were touched. Forgive me. In that spirit today, we're going to continue our series, What to Wear, by talking about the subject of forgiveness. There are many misconceptions when it comes to forgiveness, and, and today we're going to gain clarity on the subject as we open up the Word of God together. Author and speaker Neil T. Anderson, in his book, The Bondage Breaker, had this to say about the subject of forgiveness. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. That is why it's so important for us to, to understand this and, and, to, and to walk out that understanding in our daily lives. My desire, and I believe your desire, is that Jesus receive his full reward in us and, and to not give any ground to the enemy of our soul. So do you struggle to forgive others? Are you easily offended by people? Well, today we're going to discover what it looks like to forgive like Jesus. My big idea for this message is knowing you are forgiven empowers you to forgive. We as believers don't try to produce these things in and of ourselves. We can't. It's impossible. We put on Christ and we live from our new identity as sons and daughters of God. As Paul wrote in Colossians, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness and patience. And this is the verse we're going to focus on today. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
I don't know about you, but I appreciate when I get a heads up before I go into a situation. Sometimes Sarah will call me on the way home and say something like this. Hey, today's been crazy. The house is a disaster. Judah's naked in the backyard. And I need you to fix dinner. And I'm like, I got it. I know before I get home that I'm headed into a chaotic situation. But I'm not surprised by it because she prepared me for it. And a little heads up is super helpful. And that's exactly what I think Paul's doing for us here. See, he's, to bear with means to endure, to have patience, to suffer, to persist. He's saying, look, you're going to have a ton of opportunities to be offended, to hold things against people, to be frustrated by their behaviors. But instead of doing that, make the choice, make the choice to forgive. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's not granted because a person deserves to be forgiven. Forgiveness, as Dr. Tony Evans says, is, is not excusing or ignoring what has been done. Forgiveness is an act of our will. It's extending love, grace, and mercy to those around us and those that don't, don't deserve it. Throughout Jesus' life, forgiveness was a subject that he taught on often. Forgiveness is displayed through his teaching and through his interactions with people. Think of uh, the woman at the well. Think of Zacchaeus. Just to name a few. Honestly, it's hard to think of a time when Jesus wasn't forgiving. He lived a lifestyle of forgiveness. He modeled for us what it looks like to put on forgiveness. So today, we're going to open up and, and look at one of those times together. If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. That's where we're going to pick up our story. Our focus is going to be on verses 21 through 35. Uh, but to set those up for you, um, let, me, let me set them up for you, give you a little context. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and, and he's, he's talking about the, the childlikeness of, a, of the believer, what, what that looks like. He's also um, giving some, some guidelines for how churches should function and, and church discipline. And, and he then talks about forgiveness, and uh, Peter wants some clarification on on forgiveness and ask Jesus a question. And that's where we'll pick up in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. I love Peter. I was recently asked by my niece, what Bible character do you identify with? Uh, the question kind of caught me off guard, but I quickly rebounded and assured her, I, I most identify with Jesus. Um, <laughs> then, then I was punched in the side. I won't mention any names, but she sits over here. And I thought for a minute, and, and, I, and I decided on Peter. And this is one of the reasons why. Uh, you see, Peter had heard Jesus teach about forgiveness, but he wanted a number. Peter was like, I just need a number, I need a formula, but, but how did he come up with the number seven? Well, uh, growing up as a Jew, Peter was familiar with the Jewish debates about forgiveness. The most common answer that was given in these debates was to forgive three times, and on the fourth time to give no forgiveness. Uh, this is found in the book of Amos, where God forgave the enemies of Israel three times. So, so here's what I think Peter was thinking. I know it's got to be more than three for Jesus. He's always raising the standard on e for everything. So let's take three, multiply it by two, and then add one. Surely seven times will be enough 
And this is why I connect so much with Peter. Not only does he stick his foot in his mouth from time to time, but I also do the same thing when I measure out protein powder. Uh, <laughs> let me assure you, when the instructions call for two, five scoops is not good, okay? Not a good idea. Uh, Jesus' response to Peter is like, man, nice try, not seven times, but 77 times. And some of your Bibles say 70 times seven, which the math on that is 490. Uh, so how do you even keep track of that? You're not supposed to. Jesus here is using exaggerated language. It means to infinity. So you can throw your calculator away. Uh, Peter's calculation of seven gave generous boundaries for forgiveness. But as George Herbert, a famous poet, once said, Jesus puts no limits on forgiveness. No one can ever say, I've forgiven enough. Now it's time to hold a grudge. Then Jesus tells a story to explain to them and us uh, what, what he's talking about. Starting in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Have you ever had a debt or a bill come due with no money to pay for it? What a lonely feeling and one that I'm sure that most of us have had at some point in our lives. It's like as the days tick down toward the due date, the pit in our stomach grows. The same was true for the servant that we find here in this story. You see, this servant, he wasn't just any old servant. He was a powerful man that took care of a large portion of the king's territory. This would include the agricultural proceeds, the taxes collected from that area, and any other revenue that was generated from the territory that he governed. It was the servant's job to collect the money. This is cool. I think that's going to work now. Collect the money, and when the time came to give the king the proceeds from the region. You might be wondering, like, how much money are we talking about here? Like, how much is 10,000 talents? Sorry. There we go. Uh, hopefully, it'll stick. Um, in order for us to understand how much 10,000 talents is, we've got to first look at how much a denarius is. And so, to understand that, a denarius is, is one day's wage for your typical laborer. So, let's say you worked six days a week. You took a couple weeks off for vacation and other events, that means that you would earn about 300 denarii a year. You then proceed to work for, sorry, hopefully. You then proceed to work for 20 years, and, and all this time you never spend any of the money that you've earned. And after 20 years of work, you've accumulated 6,000 denarii, which equals out to be, drum roll, one talent. Only 9,999 more to go. So, um, so to pay this debt off, it would require 200,000 years of work, um, all while never spending any money. The debt was insurmountable. In today's currency, taking the average salary about $40,000, that means that one talent is equal to $800,000. That means that 10,000 talents is equal to $8 billion. It's a lot of money. And, and, but in a culture where uh, the word trillion gets thrown around pretty easily, it's easy to lose perspective on how much $8 billion truly is. So to give you some, let me tell you what you can buy with $8 billion. You can purchase 40,000 homes 
that each cost $200,000. With $8 billion, you could purchase 266,667 cars at $30,000 a piece. 8 billion seconds is around 253 years. This servant has really screwed up. And mis- <laughs> he's misappropriated a lot of money. And much like banks, when they repro property and assets, they know they're not going to be able to recover all that was lost, but are simply trying to recover some of what is lost. You see, the king looks to sell the servant, his family, and assets to do that very thing. Some of you might be thinking, man, this guy is a horrible manager of money. I can't even believe this. How do you lose that much money? This guy's the Bernie Madoff of the ancient Near East. Surely, if you or I were put into a position like this, we would do a better job. But spiritually speaking, this is our story. Isn't it? If you slide down the page to verse 35, you will see that the king in this story is God. And we are indeed the servants with the insurmountable debt. Maybe you're like, yeah, I mean, I owe God some money, but not $8 billion. Maybe I owe him like a thousand bucks or or maybe even a million, but something that I could actually work off, something that seems attainable. In our mind, we justify the sins that we commit while at the same time we point our fingers at others. And this is the heart of the person that says, I'm a good person. You see, God is holy. He's perfect. He's separate from all evil. He's altogether other. He's just. He's right. He's pure. He's perfect in all of those ways. Everything he does, everything he thinks, everything he says is good. He's blameless and he is nothing like you. This is why we can be sure that the God that we serve is not an invention of mankind. Human beings invent gods that are like us. But this God is absolutely blameless. He is holy in every single way. And because he is so perfectly holy, he is required by his nature to keep a perfect account of everything that is unholy. Revelation 20 tells us that God remembers every one of your deeds. He remembers them and writes them down. That's pretty terrifying. But it doesn't stop there. He remembers every single word that you've ever said. Everything you said to your friend that told them not to tell anybody else. Everything you said to your kid that made them melt. Everything you said to your wife underneath your breath. Every word, he remembers every single thing. Early in Matthew, Jesus says this, But I tell you, everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. This is the God of the Bible. He doesn't just know your deeds and your words. He knows your thoughts. Psalms 139.2 says, You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You might be noticing right now that your calculations are a little off. He doesn't just know your thoughts. He knows your intentions. There's somewhere in heaven, just like you've seen the national debt clock. This clock tallies the debt of our country, and it just keeps going up and up and up and up and up and up and up. The same thing is in heaven, a ticker that continues to go up and up and up, and even now. 
He is constantly recording every single nuance of your sin. He must because he's perfectly holy. Every word you spoke, every website you visited, every flirtation with that person, every craving for approval, every obsession with your appearance, our debt is massive. See, what Jesus wants us to see here is that we often think in our own calculations that the crimes committed against us are far greater than the crimes we've committed against God. And God says, no, you owe more than you realize. This is the first revelation that comes from this story. We owe far more than we realize. That's not a very comforting thought, but that is where Jesus begins. He says, you're the man with the $8 billion debt before God. I think if we're honest, if we slow down and consider this, if we stop trying to defend ourselves and just for a moment get quiet, we know that this is true. There's something inside of our hearts since as long back as we can remember that tells us that you have a debt before God. There's a cloud on the human conscience. There's a drag on our soul. Psychologists call this the spotlight effect. The spotlight effect is the fact that every time I walk out with a stain on my shirt, I think all of you notice that stain that's on my shirt. And nobody notices, but I think they do. And in my head, I'm thinking, I hope they don't think I'm a slob. I hope they don't think I wore this shirt to work again. That's the spotlight effect. And you think that way because there is a stain, but it's not on your shirt, it's on your soul. There's something inside the human conscience that knows that we are guilty before God. And there's nothing we can do to get that stain off. No matter how good you are, no matter how hard you try, that stain never goes away. There's nothing that will release our conscience. We think our greatest need in life is the right job, the right spouse, the right house, the right city, a new car, more money. If I pass out a piece of paper, which we can't now, but if I did... And said, and said, write down your greatest need. Most of us would write down one of these. But Jesus, in this story, says, stop. No, your greatest need is to be fully and forever forgiven by God and to know it. That is our greatest need as human beings. Verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before me. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Everything? Really? You're going to pay back everything? I think we've already established that that's impossible. First off, dude, you lost your job, and uh, there's no way anybody's going to hire you. And if they do, uh, you're going to get a common job. And we looked at the numbers before. Making a common worker's salary, that's going to take you 200,000 years. I don't care what vitamins you take or who you think you are. You're not living that long, dude. (laughs) Your attempts to pay off this debt are foolish. And God would say to you, so are your attempts to pay him off. For far too long, the narrative has been, if I'm just a good enough person, if I help enough people, if I come to church every week, if I give a few bucks to the needy, if I do enough good things, God's going to start liking me. And Jesus says to you today, your attempts to be good enough will never get you right with me. That's not how this works. 
Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. He did what? He forgave the debt. That word pity is translated compassion. Pastor Phil talked about being moved from within. Compassion is love in action. The same was used last week by Pastor Tim when he talked about this prodigal son. The, the father sees the wayward son far off and he's moved with compassion and runs to him. Jesus here is showing us the father heart of God. When God sees someone who is bound in sin, with no options before him, he is moved with compassion and releases the debt. But being a just and holy God, he can't just move that debt under the table. No, it's got to be paid by somebody. So who's going to pay the debt? Well, we can infer from this story that the king himself absorbs it. The king himself takes a massive amount of his own wealth and puts it toward the debt of the servant. The cost of the king would have been huge. God wants us to see this as a picture of what he did at the cross. He gave his treasure, his son, to pay my debts, and to pay your debts. Look how Colossians puts it. He forgave us all our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. All our sins He has forgiven us. Like my sins from 10 years from now, like that thing I did that nobody knows about, like that thing I did yesterday, all our sins He has forgiven us. How do He do that? By canceling the charges against us. By nailing them to the cross. By nailing His Son to the cross. In other words, He said, I'm going to take my Son, my greatest treasure that I have, and I'm going to take, it, take Him out and put it towards your debt. Not because you're good, not because you deserve it, but because I'm good. That is what God has done. See, He wants us to know that we owe far more than we, than we could ever pay. And that we've been given way more than we deserve. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The first part of the revelation, it crushes us. It humbles us. It kills our pride. It's a mortal blow to our self-esteem. I owe $8 billion before my God. I am spiritually bankrupt before my Creator. And the second revelation says, yes, you owe far more than you could ever pay, but at the same time, you are loved more than you could ever know. You stand before the King, and if He says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. It doesn't matter what your boss says. It doesn't matter what your spouse says. It doesn't matter what anybody says because you've been freed from the debt. You're free. And that freedom produces confidence. And that confidence produces assurance. You were in debt, but now you've been forgiven. And I wish that's where the story ends, but it doesn't. So we'll go on to verse 28. But when the servant went out... He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Can you believe the nerve of this guy? He was just forgiven 
$8 billion. And now he's mad about 100 denarii, which in, in today's money would be about $13,000. And I get it. I get it. That's a lot of money. That's nothing to scoff at. But because we know what just happened, $13,000 in comparison is literally peanuts. Here again is a picture of what we as followers of Christ look like when we withhold forgiveness from somebody. I want to clarify something here because I think it's really, really important. The gospel doesn't just save us. The good news sustains us. It gives us life. Guess what? You're probably going to have the thought to hold a grudge. You're probably going to get offended. But the good news is you're no longer a slave to that. You've been set free from living from that place. What you have to remember is forgiveness is not an emotion. You might never feel like forgiving Forgiveness is a choice. We don't forgive because they deserve it. We forgive according to what we've received. We have received freely, and we're told to freely give. So what do you do? What happens when you're offended or you want to hold a grudge? This message is not a five-step plan to forgiveness. There's one step. Turn your eyes to the cross. The next time you're offended instead of focusing on the offense, instead of working yourself up and telling yourself all the reasons why you should be offended, but they hurt me. They cut me right out of the deal. She took credit for the work that I did. They knew exactly what they were doing when they said that. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your cross. Thank you that you've forgiven me. Thank you that, that you don't withhold my sin against me, God. Thank you that you've released me. When, when, when we turn our eyes to the cross, we realize a couple of things. We realize that when we look at it, it reminds us, it empowers us to release the, the, the forgiveness to those around us. See, we have a new motivation to forgive. We don't look at the problem and determine if they are worthy. We look at the cross and consider if we were worthy. If you do this, you will find that you have the capacity to forgive. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their masters everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on, the, on your fellow servants just as I had had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. The servant's choice to not forgive, his choice to not extend the same mercy that he himself had received, cost him his freedom. If you're having a hard time forgiving people that have offended you, the end of this parable shows you what awaits. Prison. When we choose to not forgive, we actually place ourselves in prison one that we've locked from inside. When we're in this prison, we're rendered ineffective. We can't go anywhere. We can't do anything. We can't experience all the things that God has for us. You see, unforgiveness, it doesn't hurt the offender. It incapacitates the offended. It's like we say around here all the time. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that that guy dies. It's literally killing us. Tom Wright explains it this way. Forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. 
There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they may desperately need, you will not be able to take any more in yourself, and you will suffocate very quickly. No matter how hard it might be to release the breath of forgiveness upon the person that has hurt you, Jesus doesn't ask you to do something that he hasn't done. He is our ultimate example. He was betrayed by one of his followers and handed over to his enemies. He was falsely accused on trumped-up charges. He was denied by one of his closest friends. He was beaten to an inch of his life, mocked, spit upon, then stripped and nailed to a cross. The pain was excruciating. The anguish and suffering was second to none, but as he hung on the cross, what do we see our Savior do? With his final breath, he releases the breath of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The very ones that falsely accused him, the ones that tried him unjustly, that turned their backs on him, our Jesus, our King, forgave. You see, the cross doesn't just set us free from our sin. Remembering the cross empowers us to forgive regardless of the pain, regardless of the cost, just like the one we follow. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your forgiveness. I pray, Holy Spirit, that right now you would expose areas of our heart where we are harboring unforgiveness. Jesus, help us release them just like you've released us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So today, I would, I would like for us to respond this way. We, we still can't come down front, but I'm going to lead two groups of people that I've been praying for in a prayer. And you can just say it quietly to yourself or in your head, uh, whatever you choose. But the first group, maybe you're here today and you feel the weight of your debt before God. You felt it for a long time. You've tried to carry it and you can't. You can't because you weren't made to. You were made to be in relationship with your creator. And today the king is here and he's ready to forgive. You don't have to carry it anymore. He's ready and willing to pay it in full. Will you receive that forgiveness today by laying down your life and following Jesus? If so, will you pray with me? God, I come to you broken and in need of your forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for living a perfect life and dying the death that I deserve. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior today. I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And group two, maybe you're here and you need to release the breath of forgiveness to someone. This in no way condones the abuse or the offense that has been committed, nor does it ignore it. We do this as an act of our will because that's exactly what Jesus did. Will you pray with me? Father God, I choose as an act of my will, regardless of my feelings, to forgive the person who has wronged me. I release them and I set myself free to your healing. With your help, I will no longer dwell on the situation or continue to talk about it. I release them just like you've released me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.